Hello and welcome to episode 392 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carasino. And we're coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of... Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. I'm coming off a weekend in which I have watched so, been to, and watched so many sports that I plan on being so on one for this podcast. You're making me record on on the Sunday. Literally, this is like emotionally speaking. We talked about August as the Sunday scariest of months, right? This is like one of the most crucial restful days in the entire year. The Sunday after Thanksgiving break, when you're about to get back after it. There's two two days. The Sunday, literally New Year's Day, New Year's Day night, or the second if the if New Year's happens to fall on a weekend and you get the holiday. When you're going back to work after Christmas break. And the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And you said I said I had plans to sit in my living room and watch Roadhouse tonight. And you were like, but no, we need to record a podcast after you have been to sporting events three out of the last four days and spent the other one of those days cheering against Oregon. And here I am. (laughs) Well, it's early in the pod. I've seen a lot this weekend, and not a lot of it was positive. So here we are. That's despite the fact that the Huskies won to improve to 12-0 this season. Really just like just hanging on by a thread at 12-0. and And then also just really the hopes of any team from Seattle doing anything good hanging on by a thread as well. Well, you know women's basketball is undefeated. Had a great time <laughs> over there on, there we go. on the Big Island. Uh, yeah, well, the, the listener is coming back to work on Monday after a long weekend. The listener needs something to listen to. And the listener needs our takes because, again, a lot has gone on in Seattle sports, and you've attended basically all of it. We all have the same takes. <laughs> I don't know if we have exactly the same takes. Everything is bad, and Oregon's going to win. <laughs> oh, I don't think everyone else feels exactly the Wait, same. Wait, really? Other people are like shocked at how high the line is. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's the discussion in the Discord. We were not shocked. We definitely had this conversation on Saturday about how high the line was going to go. I said it was going to skyrocket. Seven and a half. I was like, that motherfucker's about to jump. And it did. It, it did, in fact, jump. That is accurate. Well, uh, no beer this week. The, one of the difficulties as we get into these later stages of the search for Seattle's best IPA is some of the beers become more difficult. You literally to, have to search. <laughs> I do, I do, yes. An actual search for Seattle's best IPA. And uh, I did not, the, the traffic was too bad to consider going up to Ravenna Brewing and checking out their IPA options after the Apple Cup on Saturday. So I, I don't have any beer this week. Uh, we'll be back to it hopefully next week. But we start this week with some sad news. Is on Friday. His family shared that longtime Como 4 weatherman Steve Poole died at age 70 after battling early onset Alzheimer's that led to his retirement in 2019. And, you know, the timing was, it was interesting because of the fact that Steve Poole was the, the vocal Husky fan on a Como broadcast that the late Kathy Gertson was a Coug. I, I know other, I think uh, Eric Johnson may be a Coug as well with their broadcasting department. So he was always there repping the Huskies amongst a sea of Cougs on Como. In addition to, obviously, being one of the most famous alumni from your alma mater, 
Tai High School. Exactly. Not surprising that there were a lot of cougs on a Sinclair broadcast, but uh, they, they were not. They were not owned by Sinclair at that point. I'm just saying. <laughs> like I don't think it's a coincidence. Anyway, uh, probably I was going to say the most famous Tai <laughs> alum. <laughs> you're, you're I'm classifying somebody else's infamous. Yes, that's fair. But probably up there with the most famous Taiyi High School alum of all time. There were yearbooks that we thumbed through. We found Steve Poole in the yearbooks from the 70s. And ultimately, just seeing all the photos of Steve Poole. Like, again, this is a devastating loss. Not necessarily that I was paying attention to Steve Poole, like his output, but just as a person and a human being, knowing that there is goodness in this world. Having Steve Poole walking this earth is such an amazing thing, and that is that is the huge loss. Seeing all the photos of Steve Poole and just how happy he looked all the time and how much positive energy he was putting out there was really an incredible thing. Just seemed like an awesome dude. Yeah, and you know, someone who was a fixture on... He was started at Como literally before we were born and until his retirement in 2019, there on a regular basis, uh, doing national weather at times. Uh, but sticking with the local broadcast. So this was someone who was, you know, a familiar face to, like, everyone in Seattle for a long period of time knew Steve Poole. I think Steve Poole is, like, 100% approval rating. There are not that many people out there who have 100% approval rating. And to me, Steve Poole is Seattle in a lot of ways. You know, the Seattle that we grew up with was Steve Poole. You have Bill Nye, pretty pretty close to 100% approval rating, right? Yeah. Steve Poole. That is broadcasting. Steve Rabel? I think Steve Rabel is probably pretty high up there also. Uh, but that is Seattle Broadcasting for for our generation. You know, th- those three names in particular. Who, who out there was anti-Gene Ederson? But just like Gene Ederson didn't have the magnitude necessarily that Steve Poole had. Again, Steve Poole just seemed like such a likable person in every facet. Absolutely. That, uh, again, I think he was a fixture of Seattle. And to me, that is the Seattle that we grew up with is Steve Poole Seattle. So our thoughts with Steve Poole's family uh, after after his passing. Uh, in happier news, congrats to Jake Browning and Drew Sample, who became the first pair of UW products to ever combine on an wow. NFL regular season touchdown on Sunday, according to Husky SID Jeff Bechtold. I'm kind of shocked by that. I mean, we definitely took note of it when Browning to Sample was a touchdown. But I would I assume, yeah. I mean, there have been a lot of Husky quarterbacks in the NFL for long periods of time that at no point Mark Brunell never linked Warren up. Warren Moon? Oh, yeah, Warren Moon. That's kind of wild, actually. Yeah, kind of bonkers. So be- between all of those players, Warren Moon, Mark Brunell, Damon Heward, Jake Locker, that never once did two Huskies link up, that's kind of an incredible stat. Yeah. All right, that's all we have as, as far as toasts uh, are on the food update. As we record this, there is still one day left. If you're looking to get the little Crunchwrap Supreme, got a positive review from Randy Cote on the, on the Feldencast Discord. There we go. Yeah, I have not gotten that this year, but this week I am planning to get the final uh, final burger in Fast Food Month, the Woody's style, which you know, in, clearly inspired by the Feldencast yep. double burger, uh, their version of the In and Out double double animal style. So I think they introduced this last year, and it was quite good. The little crunch wrap slaps all caps. <laughs> Thank you, Randy, for that. That's awesome. If, again, if you're not on the Discord, be sure to check out that link uh, and join us. We're 
we're still adding members. It's it's a robust discussion, great for during games, uh, during the Husky game on Saturday, you know, football game on Saturday, during the Seahawks game on Thursday. Also, there was a robust Mariners discussion. Was there? The I was at all Saturday. of these events, so I have no idea what's going on. Well, I was monitoring the Discord in, from the East End Zone. I was just cold. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was cold too, but I wore so many layers that Did I you? maybe was not as cold I wore as you. Nowhere, nowhere near enough layers. Of the three sporting events that I went to, I think there's something about Husky Stadium being open and on the water in particular, I think, makes it colder. Yeah. But our seats at the top of the east end zone, Yeah. I think that those those seats have to be like up there with the coldest in the entire building. But it was also like a warmer part of the day than you were at Lumen Field for the Seahawks I, and Sounders. I, but I, I dressed a lot warmer for both of the Lumen Field games. At no point was I cold for either of them, huh. except watching the performances. Cold on the inside. Well, you know who's feeling cold on the inside? Many Mariners <sighs> fans. After Wednesday's news that you broke to me, I drove to Portland for the uh, Blazers Jazz game on Wednesday night. And uh, it, just as I was arriving in Portland, you called me to talk about the reaction on the Discord to the Mariners trading Eugenio Suarez to the Diamondbacks for catch, catcher Sebi Zavala and minor league relief pit, reliever Carlos Vargas in what looks mostly like a salary dump for the Mariners. We can talk about the two players they got in the return, but largely this seems to be about getting off of Suarez's $11.3 million salary next season and the small guarantee he was doing in 2025 if his team option was declined. Okay, so I've seen all the arguments against Gino going forward, right? I mean, against Gino going forward is a tough... Tough way to put I, it. I have seen all of the arguments that people have laid out that you wouldn't assume that Eugenio Suarez is going to be a better hitter in 2024 than he was in 2023. So to go through this, I think you would actually still expect him to be a slightly better hitter, but maybe not that appreciably better than newly added Luis Orias, who now looks like not a utility player for the Mariners, but most likely they're starting third baseman barring another move. Uh, Suarez will turn 33 in July. He led the AL in strikeouts for a second consecutive season, albeit with a slightly lower K rate. You know, the fact that he played all 162 games was a factor there. But the big concern was his power drop. His 159 isolated slugging, so that's your slugging minus your batting average, was the lowest of his MLB career. So too was his 3.2% home run rate in terms of at-bats. So his weighted on base average projection from fan graphs of 319 only marginally better than Urias's 314 projection. And obviously he'll be much cheaper with, you know, a projected uh, arbitration salary of 4.7 million next season. So th there are those arguments about Gino going forward. And I completely understand that. Look, I, I'm not saying necessarily that you can look at third base with Gino and be like, check, we are done. Right. Played very good defense. I think statistically ended up being a better hitter than defender last year. But yeah, the, at least by the baseball reference version of war, his defense was not nearly as good as kind of the, the eye test would lead you to believe. But also played, he played good defense. We yeah. know he played good defense. Yeah. We watched a lot of these I fucking mean, it's, games. It's likely a downgrade to Urias at third base, I would say. I, and I didn't check the fan graph split between offense and defense to see if they concurred. Played, played generally pretty good defense, or I would say even very good defense, was a steady third baseman for the Mariners, was still the kind of player in the lineup that you look at it and you're like, who who am I looking at in this order who could hit a double at any time, who could hit, could hit a homer at any time? Who's that bats do I not want to miss? Yeah, and Gino is definitely one of those players. Even beyond that, look, I understand it, it, sports are a cold business, but like, if you're the Mariners, 
the fan rating is quite low right now. The amount of people who I have heard personally tell me that they got season tickets or 20 game packs or whatever, some sort of ticket package for the season that just finished coming off of the playoff appearance who are not renewing those tickets for the following year because there's a reality to it where you're like, 20, I, of course I want to go to 20 games or whatever. Of course I want this pot of money to spend for the Mariners. Then when you have to do that and realize how many fucking games 20 is over a summer, all of a sudden it seems like kind of a lot. I think the Mariners' t ticket renewal rate must be quite low for those types of people. I think it spiked and then went down. And players like Gino Suarez are players that fans like to see. I mean, I think if you want to take the positive view on this, number one, like when the Mariners got Gino Suarez, he was just the throw-in in the Jesse Winker trade, which is, of course, amusing on many levels at this yes. point. He was the salary that the Mariners had to take back to do that. And this is one of the things I believe. It's, it's related to the Pelton Cast Golden rule. Like, if players play well, you're going to fall in love with them, even though if they replace players who you previously liked. I, I agree with that. But, but the, here's the reality. A, this is not that much money. No. Like, it is a salary dump for a few million dollars. It's not like Gino is getting paid. This wasn't getting off the Robinson Cano deal. Correct. Right? Like, it is a relatively, in the grand scheme of things, a very small amount of money. So even on their pocket, when there's this idea that, it, again, people are like, well, maybe they're looking at putting together a larger offer for a free agent. That is a very rosy perspective of Mariners' ownership, and we will see. We the, will see. They haven't earned the benefit of the doubt. I will agree with that. But also, if they're like, well, now we could pay Shohei $700 million. We got off that Geno 11. Like, the math just doesn't add up between those two. And if the, I think if they were going to, if they are reasonably going to be putting in a competitive offer for a big-name free agent, I don't think the Geno money actually matters that much. And that, to me, is the issue here, which is, why now? Because what the Mariners are lacking at the major league level is enough quality bats. That is what they do not have. They just don't have enough good hitters and enough good players on the roster overall. And right now, so far this offseason, they are regressing in that category. There is nothing that has happened in, and again, this is just the very beginning of the offseason. There, there is so much that can happen from here forth. I would be shocked. Mm, I would not be shocked. I take that back. I would be surprised if they didn't make a trade for a bat at some point this offseason. Or sign one in free agency. I mean, but also, I felt the same way last year, and we've been burned once, and you know about being fooled twice. Like the the last off season, what we were sold was Colton Wong and AJ Pollock and Tommy Lastella, right? And if that's what's happening again, and you're subtracting Teoscar Hernandez and Eugenio Suarez, all of a sudden, this is not a better Major League Baseball team. You're, you're creating more holes to fill at some point. Like, if the argument is, oh, we can't sign Shohei because there's too many holes to fill. Like, and maybe Suarez to Urias is not that big of a downgrade, but even at best, but that's a neutral. both of them. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's not a rule against... It's not like, pff, we could never find a place for Luis Urias to play. Gino Suarez is well, here. Look, again, this is good news for one person and one important person. <laughs> Haggerty? Sam Haggerty. That's fine. But, like... There's I I love Sam Haggerty. You want the Mariners to be good more than you want Sam Haggerty to be to be on the roster? Probably. Sam Haggerty's like he's like the cherry on top of a team, right? I don't want him to be the consolation prize. 
That's for fair. the for the team. I don't want it to be like, well, they lost another 90 games, but at least Sam Hagerty was there. I mean, I I'm not going to be paying attention if that's the case. I think the scenario is, well, they finished three games out of the third one. Yeah, whatever. Of... Yeah, they didn't. They they won 54% of their games and still missed the playoffs. But Sam Hagerty was there. But like, they could have both of those players on the roster. I also think they probably could have traded Gino a month from now, three months from now, July. Like, there's so many opportunities for them to have made this trade that it just didn't need to happen right now. And that's that's the thing that I think is the most upsetting about it, is like, go into the season with Gino. Unless there is something coming that we don't know about, go into the season with both of them. You don't need to clear that spot to get Luis Arias on the field. Luis Arias... Arias. Luis Arias. I know you made the Luis Arias joke. Luis Arias, with his versatility, will find a way onto the field if he's good. Right? That is not a concern. Like, he will find a spot to play. And if he's playing well, he will continue. Caballero played so much last year. Right? There's always at-bats for players that are versatile. But taking away a quality Major League player is not something that the Mariners are in the position to be doing right now because all of a sudden they are a worse batting team than they were last year without Teoscar Hernandez and without Eugenio Suarez. And if that's the case, this team is not going to get better this offseason. So something needs to happen, and I do not think this $11 million that they're saving, or less, right? What is the net savings here? About $6 million. This $6 million that they're saving is not going to be that big of a difference for anybody aside from maybe John Stanton. The other thing here is the murders are aware Ty France is still their starting first baseman, right? Like, again, we'll see early in the offseason. Like, you're so concerned about strikeouts, but not concerned about just general above replacement play. Being concerned with strikeouts is like a football team being so concerned with turnovers and punting every time. Does that make sense? It does make sense. In fact, we've lived it. So it's, I get it. They're trying to get off some of these strikeouts. Maybe that was the reason that they were bad, but I think they weren't bad even. Like the team was generally pretty good overall, but they still had a severe lack of depth overall at the major league level, and they are subtracting from that depth. Depth in their lineup, yeah. Uh, We we should talk briefly about the players that got returned. (sighs) Uh, Zavala, the catcher, is very Mariners-y in terms of he is coming off a relative down season. He had one war in his best season in 2022 before slipping before replacement last season. Was designated for assignment by the White Sox in September and claimed off waivers by the Diamondbacks. He hit 270 in 2022, but it was pretty empty. Has hit 210 overall in his major league career. Uh, did back in 2001 became the first player in major league history to hit his first three career home runs all in the same game. In what year? 2021. Okay. Uh, reporting is that the Mariners will move on from backup catcher Tom Murphy with the additions of Zavala and fellow newcomer. Also, wasn't Blake Tom Hunt. Murphy a better hitter last year than Sebi Zavala? Yes. Tom Murphy was like a pretty good hitter when he played. But I guess he's going to make too much behind Cal Raleigh. Uh, as for Vargas, the reliever they got, he broke camp with the Diamondbacks last spring, lasted just five appearances. Also fits a Mariners profile as a reliever with good stru- stuff who's ha- struggled to harness it, had 32 walks in 42 and a third innings last season. I mean, when AAA. you look at Tom Murphy's OPS, that has to be up there with the best on the team. I mean, he was DHing for periods of time last season. So, yeah. Moving on. 
And I got some work to do. And I hope that they are hearing this fan frustration and paying attention. To but it. but it's another that is another subtra- subtraction of relatively quality hitting. Giving given the amount of you know plate appearances that Tom Murphy had, he's at one point four offensive WAR. Like there were many games where I was like, thank God for Tom Murphy. Yeah. Last year, who do you think had a better OPS, Julio Rodriguez or Tom Murphy? I still think Julio had a better OPS than Tom Murphy. I, I truly, truly do not know. I mean, part of that offensive war is being a catcher and the low standards offensively for catchers. Do you want to answer that question again? It was it, Tom Murphy? Tom Murphy had a better OPS. Wow. I mean, but he only played in 75 games. I'm, I get I'm, it. Yeah. Like, I, I'm willing to couch that and to understand the context, but he had an 858 OPS. Also, is like... You know, the previous year, or no, no, sorry, 873 OPS. Previous year was 894. That is back-to-back seasons that he had a better OPS than Julio Rodriguez. 818 last year for Julio. Wow. So he had a better OPS. It was only 14 games in 2022. Yeah. But, uh, what the fuck? The Mariners have some work to do. How, do how does that make sense? How does that make sense to move on from Tom Murphy? Did he strike too, out too much? I mean... Maybe we'll trade Julio since he strikes out too much. Is he in arbitration years right now, Tom Murphy? No, I believe he's a full-on free agent. He's just a free agent? Yes. But, like, whatever. Maybe they should trade Julio. <laughs> and then you'll become a fan of wherever Julio gets traded. I mean, it's like one of those things where you're like, if if you're if you're just gonna fuck this up, maybe like they don't need one Julio Rodriguez. They need like six Julio Rodriguez's right now. I don't know that they need six Julio Rodriguez's. <sighs> one one. All right. I just literally they have proven that they are. They have, the off season has to go very positively from this point forward. There is a there is a lot of pressure on them, given what they have done to the roster, to make sure you don't have to finish the roster by the beginning of the season. I can accept that. They can make you know they traded for Luis Castillo mid season two years ago. They also, in the midst of a playoff run that they seem to not want to participate in, also made they made multiple salary dumping moves last year during the season. They did. Right? Two times with relievers did they make salary dump moves during the season. This team is not committed to winning. I'm sorry, but that's the reality of it. They are not committed to winning. At, at Their foremost goal is not to win baseball games. Their foremost goal is to win as many baseball games as possible while still being a relatively cheap payroll. There's no other way to describe it. Is there? Is there not? I mean, I think they care about youth as well. I, again, I... I think the 54% is a real thing in terms of a an extended run over a period of time. And trading Paul Seawald is a closer who you can make a new Paul Seawald, and they did, for you know younger players. Who is the new Paul Seawald they made? Munoz. You can have both. That's what we're talking about right but, now. But, but there is a value if you're running a baseball. Even like... If you're the Dodgers, it still makes sense to trade your closer and just put someone cheaper in that role and inflate their value because you can trade that player for someone else who plays a more stable position. 
But that was a salary dump move because they they found themselves in the playoff hunt. They didn't expect to be there. It was a it was a win leader move. I I, do, I reject we, that. We literally had players they, talking about how they had to prove the front office wrong at the deadline. I, again, I'm not. That's but that's a different thing than a salary dump. They traded him for Canzone, who is a younger player. Didn't they, they make a him pure for, salary dump with relievers earlier yes, in the Trevor, season? The Trevor Gott trade was in fact a pure salary dump. It's just not a commitment to winning baseball. I mean, I, I agree this, that they are that that they are cheap. They are undoubtedly cheap, and that being cheap hurts their options. Hearts of the Seattle Kraken <laughs> dropped a touchdown on the lowly San Jose Sharks. There we go. Seven to one home win. It's the only sporting event I didn't go to this weekend. Before losing nearly as badly to Vancouver, five one on Friday. Uh, of course. With Brandon Tanev suffering an injury in that one. Uh, Tuesday at Chicago, they start a four-game road trip with the next three across the border in Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. Seattle Sounders, in the last of the three games you attended this weekend, a one nothing loss Sunday to LAFC in the MLS Western Conference semifinals, ending their season. Uh, this was, I felt, a very strange match, generally speaking. Can I tell you something? Okay. This was literally the first Sounders match I watched all year. Yeah. This was it, right? I was, I was, Luca was like, how can I watch this? And I'm like, it has to be on local TV. No, oh, no, sir. I mean, I did, <laughs> that's, that's, I did tune in FS1 because I just assumed that they would put the playoff games on national TV. Do you have the MLS package? I do, yes. Well, T-Mobile, it's free. That's what Chris told me. If you have T-Mobile. Well, technically you have my T-Mobile. I don't know if you're aware of this. So. Oh, there's only like one account per. Probably, yeah. Okay. I, I signed up for it. Uh, well, that's good. It's nice to see that's working. I think it's probably a pretty terrible decision, to be honest. But, uh, I mean, how many people in the city of Seattle do you think even watched this match? I mean, a decent number on the Discord did. There we go. So I feel like the Discord is probably like also, the most active fans. The answer is not that many because one of the things about Sounders fans and one of the reasons that MLS made this deal in the first place is most of the fans who care about the Sounders are at the game. Like, there's not a lot of, like, casual sound MLS fans, basically. You're either you're but don't, at don't the game. But don't you think that's an important thing to try to build? I think it is, but I, I think they've tried for a long period of time, and it didn't really take. If, if I had to give... Because here's the thing about watching soccer on TV is most of the... That, like, obviously, these games are at night. But if I have the choice between watching the EPL on TV or the MLS on TV, that's a pretty easy call most of the time. Whereas I don't have the option of attending an EPL game, but I cannot attend an MLS game. I actually, I kind of, I found myself being like, oh, th this is fun. Yeah. It, it's been a long time since I've been to a Sounders match. I think I went to one last season, but I don't remember 100%. I actually was like, was this the first Sounders match that I went to post-pandemic? And I know that it wasn't because I remember taking a work phone call at a Sounders match for like a long period of it <laughs> post-pandemic. So... But the, 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 the pageantry of it, like leading into the game, amazing. And then at the end, the season's just over. It's kind of wild to be like, there was a three-week break, right? A multiple-week break. Not a three-week break. How long was it? Two weeks? It was two weeks between. A two-week break play. in the middle of your playoffs. You come back, you lose, and it's just like, all right, see you next year. It is a very straight—it is very—it is— 
low on, on the uh, pageantry and on the fan experience. Like, taking a break, a two-week break in the middle of the playoffs is just a stupid thing. Like, the MLS has to figure this out. There, There is no solution to it. There's no period of time where you can just play all the playoff games between international breaks, I, have I don't think. I have so many notes for soccer in general well, and for the MLS. Like, literally stop the clock. That's it. I'm sorry, but, like, the reality of soccer is you have to stop the clock. It with it, the running this is clock. Be your take. The running clock makes soccer a bad sport to watch. All that happened, literally, there was forty-five, more than forty-five minutes. When was the when was the goal scored? The thirty, the thirtieth minute. How clean? Okay, so there were sixty minutes of game time plus eight minutes of stoppage time plus one in the first half. Right. There were sixty-nine total minutes of fans complaining about time wasting. That was it. Six, it was 30 minutes of soccer, 69 minutes of fans complaining about time wasting. And it's just like, maybe the entire sport shouldn't be built around fucking around and wasting time. I'm going to pass along your notes to FIFA, a notoriously progressive group I'm, that I'm is sure saying, to incorporate this it feedback. It kind of sucks. Like, being there and being angry at the referee, it's like, what is he going to do? Add 40 minutes of stoppage time? I mean, I think, the uh, look, if you want to get rid of stop, it's time wasting, then How yes, about this? add 40 minutes of stoppage time. Every other sport has figured it out. Can I, you just stop the clock. Well, again, the clock doesn't have to run. I think soccer's doing fine. Uh, Do you think soccer's doing fine? Overall, as a sport, maybe it's doing fine. But I will say F1 well, is probably catching up in Europe. And... I, I don't think that's an issue for soccer. And also, in the U.S., ML, soccer was like the hot sport, right, for a long time. That fan base has leveled off. Do you think the fan, the fandom of soccer overall in the United States is growing? Mm, probably too small. Degrees, We're the but last not, soccer generation. Not as dramatically as it once was. I mean, I, I want to raise an unrelated I complaint. I told you going to be on one. Uh, you did tell me that. It was it was kind of boring, just being like I'm so angry. But also the idea of fans. I'm like really ultimately I'm kind of like Ben at the start of the Apple Cup. I'm neutral. You know what I mean? I'm not that invested here. But like the famous cousin Katie's husband, who went to Washington State, was sitting with <laughs> us and wore blue <laughs> powder blue. He's in his bitter phase. He's in his bitter era about about kook fandom until the game was close, and then he became the most one of the most lovable people, right? And then you midway through that game, I was like, I hate Ben so deeply right See, now. See, I was I was way to the other side. So I was I had a buffer zone. When Ben of you. was squealing every like touchdown that Wazoo scored, because it's just like <laughs> you're, you're so upset. And then there's a person who you know who's happy. It's not just the amorphous like Kook fans. Right. Also, the fucking asshole who is next to him. We spent so much time complaining about that guy after too. He said that we didn't know football. He was like, these guys don't know football. <laughs> I'm sure that that Katie in particular telling any Carcino that they don't know something that is like the number one trigger for a fucking Carcino. <laughs> oh so, yeah. Uh, he said that I don't even know what the context because Katie didn't want to argue with him about calls, and it's just like we don't want to talk to you at all, dude. We're, we don't know you. Yeah, we're not. We're just sticking to our own. Bit. We're minding our own business here. Yeah, which you is also a very Carcino trait. Have have fun. No, the people to the other side, amazing. Well, but we were friends with them. I don't need to have an in-football game relationship with a Coog fan. I Thank agree. you. We're good. Anyway. Wait, I wanted to complain about something. Okay, wait. I you Can I come, come back to my complaint? it's about time-wasting. Okay. Okay. Like, people always... There's, like, this thought that... 
referees were biased for Man U uh-huh. during the Sir Alex Ferguson days because like there were studies that showed that there was longer extra time in Manchester United home games or maybe in games in general than in games for other teams. And it's like, yeah, of course there fucking was because of the fact that teams that actually got a lead on Man U they were trying time to time-waste waste like crazy. You're not time-wasting against Watford. Yeah. Well, that's 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 my other point is every single fan in the stadium, not everyone or whatever, but like the 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 perspective of the fans, right, was that LAFC is cheating by time wasting and the Sounders are angels. Oh, of course. But like the shit would have been exactly the same had it been the other way around. And that I mean, is not exactly that, the same because teams do time waste more when on the they road. have to lead at the road. Yes. Like there, there's a logic it's not to like, it. LAFC invented the concept of time wasting and just them, right? Yeah. They are not there is a singular evil to organ and faking injuries. That is an organ thing. They have done it for a long time. Organ fakes injuries. Not really for a long time. Mostly just since Dan Lanning got there. You think Dan Lanning specifically? Oh, Chip Kelly didn't fake injuries? No, they were had injuries. They had injuries against, against them. So Dan Lanning personally, but that is different. It's not like you play against Wazoo and every every player is faking injuries, or UW has players faking. There, injuries. there was another team that like picked it up in the Pac-12 that was not against us, right? At the end of a half, and I don't. They, know. And they did it too late, though. The I don't clock know had already that. run out. But so like the faking injuries thing, that is Oregon specifically trying to game the system. Yes. That is them personally cheating. LAF City, LAFC, and the Sounders both understand the concept of time-wasting and have done it in equal measures, both positively and negatively, for and against you. It's just a broken sport. Like, it is It is not the fun... It was I actually it's really L- a strange L- turn for Leo Messi to take. But LAFC scored, and I thought in my head, thank God LAFC scored, because now we're actually going to start playing soccer. I'm like... That is what needs to happen. A sport shouldn't be like, well, I hope one team gets down so the sport can become interesting now. You know what I mean? But like the Sounders attacking during that time period was the only fun aspect. They would have an opportunity. Then LAFC would would time waste for a period of time or whatever. And we would go back to yell, to booing or something. It was It's a stupid fucking dance that is done. Right? And then you end and you're like, well, I guess I'm mad at the referee. Like I don't, there there were some calls, but but the other piece was I think the referee me. was also a did the the referee. I'm not saying it was a well refereed match. Were you watching? Yeah, the slide tackle that Chiellini had all, all legs, right? Like you saw that on the replay. It was not like I I was expecting the replay to be like, oh, it was actually clean, and then I saw the replay and I was like, oh yeah, that should have been a, a foul. Do you yeah. know which one I'm talking about? I do, yeah. It was literally right in front of us. But the referee but, Ted Ankle was mentioned on the broadcast so many times. Like that's just never a good sign no. when there's so much discussion of the referee and a lot of Taylor Twelman disagreed with his calls. Really? Oh yeah. So I, I'm not saying that it was a well refereed game, but there was a little part of me in the back of my head. I told Chris he was complaining about I think Keelini was on the ground, and I was like, I almost named a child after that person. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, my allegiances here are to the Sounders, but also, I'm not like, oh, wow, I feel so deeply about Jordan Morris or whatever. Jordan Morris is just a soccer player, right? Like, Nico Ladero is just a soccer player. I mean, Jordan Morris is also a local. No, like, that's great. That is that. great. But he's, he's an like, MLS player, right? He is, he is a very nice MLS player. Giorgio Chiellini 
is the best is on the best team in all of Europe. He won the fucking Euro with that team. And the Sounders got so thoroughly Chiellini'd in this game that he was just like, he was doing his whole thing, right? And I was like, I wonder if I'll feel anything watching Chiellini. Chiellini. And it was it's frustrating to be on the other side of it, right? Yeah. To see that and to have your rooting interest be against it. But at the end of the day, like when he's making those plays in the box and he's so physical, right? There was, I can't remember where there was Reed Diaz or whatever. Like they, they were arguing and then he hugged him or whatever. And he just did the Chiellini thing. And I was like, that's a motherfucking football player right there. I was like, all of you people are playing soccer. Giorgio Chiellini is playing football. Thank you. So it was, there was a little part of me that was just like, maybe go get a fucking player like that, Sounders, and then we can talk. This roster is ancient. It is ancient. But it's and- not ancient. It's not? No. At the, at the top, these players, they have just been on the team forever, and there hasn't really been... Like, this, they yeah, lived through this 14-9 and nine season. This is the Huskies being 12-0 and 0 of a season. I'm sorry. It's not, not on several levels, but no, I mean, that was the big story of this season. Nico Ladero did not start this match. I know. Has not started know, any of the region, recent matches. So you're, you're saying the roster has evolved with, with these players kind of phasing out? Yeah. Real Rodriguez doesn't start anymore. I mean, he's not... Is he gone after this year? He he is under contract for next season. We'll is talk he? about it this in and, a second. But Ladero's gone. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, so for anyone who did not watch this match and did not just want a, a lecture about the rules of the sport, which it, is the world's it, most here, popular. Here's, here's what happened in the sport. The goalie's holding the ball. People are counting. Every person's counting different numbers. They're like, it's just like Carl Malone. And I'm like, well, it's not just like Carl Malone, actually, because the clock is ticking off here. When Carl Malone's doing that, it's kind of just annoying. <laughs> but true. the clock is ticking off in soccer. It's, there is a difference. It's only a rule in basketball because of boredom. Exactly. Our lives. <laughs> are frittering away from us <laughs> while this goalie is just bouncing the ball or whatever. Denis Buanga had the goal for LAFC on the breakaway in the 30th minute. Sounders, who had pretty much controlled play to that point, finished with 16 shots, eight of them on goal. They had 1.2 expected goals to 0.4 for LAFC. Now, I would caution in a situation like this, like, it's kind like, of inevitable. Trying. From the 30th minute on? Yeah. So it's not like, oh, the Sounders got so unlucky in this one. They like, got a little unlucky. They got a little unlucky. They probably should have scored a goal at some point along the way. But if oh, they I mean, had scored the, the a goal... The ball that Jordan Morris had at the very, very beginning right. of the match. Uh, Maxime Crippot was incredible in goal for LAFC. But no, it, he he also just wasted so much time. You know, you have to factor that in. <laughs> I don't have that in my expect, <laughs> XG calculations. <laughs> But uh, like, it, had it been tied or had LAFC not scored that Buanga goal, like they would have created a lot more opportunities than they actually did. So as we look ahead to next season for the Sounders, which is in like four to six weeks, I believe, uh, Ladero announced before the playoffs this would be his, they would be his last with the Sounders. He's the most prominent free agent, although they have not ruled out a return. With Stephen Fry apparently agreeing to an extension out of his free agency, and granted Fry is rather old, but. Goalkeeper is a position where you can play for an extended period of time, so that's not a huge issue necessarily or an imminent issue. Uh, your lookalike Kellen Rowe is also a free agent. These Sounders hold, hold club options on Josh Atencio, Joao Paulo, and Albert Rushnak, as well as reserves Javier Arriaga and Hebert, who seem unlikely to return. That would free up some sp- substantial cap space along with Lodero, as well as a designated player spot to build around this core that they have developed this year with 
Josh Atencio moving into the starting lineup, Leo Chu as a young player, and then Jackson Reagan at center back. Those are, along with Jordan Morris and Christian Roldan, who are younger, Alex Roldan, you know, that's that's the core of the Sounders going forward, although Joao Paulo and Albert Rushnak, who are a bit older, have been an important part of the defensive spine in midfield. Do you think those players are actually, like, the core of the Sounders? Like, are those MLS Cup winning players, considering where the MLS is going right now? I mean, we'll see where the MLS is going with a full season of Messi and how that potentially affects things and, you know, what's next after that. But, yeah, I mean, they were pretty good this year despite not getting great contributions from their highest paid player. Like, Who was the Rudy as? No, Ladero. Ladero was their the second highest paid player. So it was really, I mean, he did not have a great season. He played a lot more than Ladero did. Ladero was like Bobby Wagner trying to fill a gap. I <laughs> just way too low on Bobby Wagner right now. <laughs> I told and you I was going to be on. You weren't at the game. You did not have to sit through this. Yeah, but you just need to blame Pete Carroll for this and not Bobby Wagner. Because guess what? We had a season of not Bobby Wagner, and it wasn't like, oh, the defense was amazing last year without Bobby Wagner. You know what happened? They had to go inside I'm Bobby just, Wagner because the defense was so bad. Bobby Wagner. It's an uncomfortable joke. <laughs> Kitty on the square. So they were in a position to add a big player to this roster. We'll see. They probably will not do it this offseason, would be my guess. Like Ladero, it will probably be a summer edition, transfer window edition. But, you know, whether that's another goal scorer and they move Jordan Morris back to the wing on a more regular basis. Bobby Wagner's PFF grades are actually very, very good. Yeah. (laughs) Or if you think that Jordan Morris is just the striker for this team, then, you know, I think it's signing another depth you know, depth scorer, and then maybe try and invest in another top-tier playmaker along the lines of Ladero, who, like, was the source of this. They signed Ladero, and they won the MLS Cup immediately afterwards and went to four in a I, period I, of time. It is clear to me that that's what this team needs, is is they need, they do not have almost any playmaking. Like, the chances that were created was there's the Jordan Morris run. Obviously, LAFC was playing very defensive, and they are playing against, like I said, one of the best defenders in the world. Correct. In the middle of the field. So, like, people complaining about that. Just Chiellini has everybody organized, right? He's a beast in the middle, and he has everybody organized and on schedule. He is at a different level than most players. That's what I was thinking about, where I was like, the creativity of, like, an MLS player is, like, they do everything that I expect them to do, Right? But a player who's at like a truly, truly high level does things that are just like actually miraculous, right? That that are and Bwanga had that moment for their goal. Is like he won the golden boot. He's the leading scorer in the league. Like that's the kind of player. And LAFC has more money than the Sounders do. But you know, I think this is an opportunity for the Sounders to go out and add a marquee talent who can be part of this roster for the next five to six years. Bwanga's French. He's Gabonese, but a French national. I see. Yeah. And played at St. Etienne. Yeah. So, like, has played at a pretty high level. Yeah, he played in League One. Yeah. Yeah. So, he's legit. And, look, again, LAFC has spent the most... I don't know if they've spent the most money, but they've at least spent the money the most most money most effectively of anyone in MLS. And it does seem like we're maybe transitioning away from the period of time where the Sounders and Timbers... Where you know one of them were in MLS Cup every year. I heard for... Cincinnati's good somehow. <laughs> Cincinnati was good, yes. I just I was like, I, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> we have double checked the record. Chris was like, no matter what, the MLS Cup will be played in Ohio, 
And I was oh, like, it's either going to be Cincinnati or Columbus. I was like, in the United States, Ohio. <laughs> I mean, they're playing we, a soccer final there. When we played in MLS Cup most recently in 2020, it was in Columbus. Uh, that just it's something about it just doesn't check out. But Cincinnati being being very good, I don't look. Maybe they've spent. I don't know. Probably not as much as Inter Miami or LAFC. Uh, but but the, the skill level, the attacking and the playmaking, like LAFC had some before they closed up shop or whatever between Vela, between Boanga, like there's some real attacking there. Yeah. I mean, look, they're they're a great team. But again, the Sounders had a better record than them in the regular season. So it's not like, you know, they're on totally different levels. Here. Sometimes that doesn't matter. The Mariners had a chance to did they have a chance to eliminate the Rangers from the playoffs? If they had swept or, that series? Well, the Rangers were the wild card in the end, right? They were the wild card. And the Mariners won three of four. No, they weren't. Wait, were they? I believe they were. I don't know. I guess that would make sense, because I was wondering why they weren't the two seed, but, and then they weren't. So, yeah, they must have been the wild card. All right, let's talk about UW women's basketball, which won, which swept their way through the Rainbow Wahine showdown in Honolulu, Hello. winning all three of those games by at least 17 points, the first two by precisely 20. Uh, Friday against Idaho State, mostly about defense, a 57-37 win as they held the Bengals to 16 field goals and 22 turnovers. On Saturday, the offense got going against former UW coach Chris Gobrecht and the Air Force with Lauren Schwartz's 19 leading three players in double figures and the Huskies holding the Falcons to 32% shooting. And then the defense shined again against host Hawaii on Sunday. Uh, the, the Rainbow Wahine shot 28% from the field. Delea Daniels dominated the board paint with 19 points and nine boards and Savia Sellers came off the bench for nine points. Huskies back home Saturday afternoon against USF. The Dons are 2-4. and four. Their longtime coach and former Stanford player Molly Goodenbauer yield their only D1 win today, but they were competitive at Arizona State, losing 77-69. Also, as a common opponent, they lost at Hawaii. So should be an opportunity for the Huskies are, to run their record to 8-0. Are there, are there sniffs of being ranked here? I, or? I looked at that. They did not receive any votes last week. We'll see if they do this week. I mean, the schedule has been very easy thus far, but... Huskies are winning all these games, and that's a good sign because you could lose them. Uh, UW men's basketball. <laughs> Husky football. <laughs> uh, returns to action. you could lose them. <laughs> we'll get there. Returns to action Tuesday against UC San Diego, not to be confused with San Diego. This one is in the fourth year of their transition to Division Wait, this one. is actually a different team? It is, yes. There's UC San Diego. In San, San US, Diego. USD. In, in San, San Diego, Diego State. State. Correct, yes. That's too many San Diegos. <laughs> I agree. Uh, they won their first four games, all against sub-200 teams in Ken Palm, all at home. They lost 70-70 to a bad Idaho team as part of the Seattle U Holiday Tournament before, and I have not updated this facing the host Red Hawks on Sunday night. Uh, so as I look this up and stall for time here, oh no, web server is returning an unknown error. They lost 79-67. <laughs> too many San Diegos. <laughs> they lost three? Two I was willing to accept. 79-67 to Seattle U on Sunday night. Uh, but we'll stick around in the city a couple extra days. If you need to me to fill anymore. I oh, God. God, you've got all sorts of material. You'll be here all <laughs> yeah, week. About, about what's next? Four San Diego's? 
<laughs> there really is. There are three different. Co- I'm just mostly fascinated with this in general. That there are three different colleges, not even that are competing in college basketball. That there is a UC. I thought San Diego was UC San Diego. San Diego State. I I don't know. Don't ask me to explain. The I'm UC saying system. San Diego. No, not U- San Diego State. USD is private. They're Catholic. Okay. That's why they play in the West Coast Conference. That, that's a Jesuit school or just a Catholic school? I don't know which particular denomination they are, but uh, okay. they are Catholic. And then San Diego State is a public school. But not part of the UC system. Oh, you've really gotten to the bottom of it. At least they're not named UC. I, I know that much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look, now I feel like there could be more San Diego's. This podcast, higher education. Unit men returned to Las Vegas Saturday for what's developed into an important matchup against Colorado State. The Rams are number 29 and Ken Palm okay. with a 6-0 start capped by upsetting Creighton, speaking of Catholic colleges, 69-48 to win the Hall of Fame Classic in Kansas City. They held an efficient Creighton offense to 34% shooting on two, 6 of 29 from three, including a 1 of 16 night from guard Trey Alexander. Uh, this is an experienced team that plays five seniors and a junior atop its rotation. Six-foot guard Isaiah Stevens is the engine of the offense, ranking in the nation's top 10 in assist rate while shooting 61% on twos, 53% on threes. Center Joel Scott is an interesting story. He was the Division II Player of the Year last season at Black Hills State, which is not in San Diego, and has proven <laughs> effective against better competition. Wait, where are the Black Hills at? I want to say it's the Dakotas. I was going to guess that too. It's I, somewhere around there. It's got to be the Dakotas somewhere. Uh, the following Tuesday, Huskies back at home against Montana State, their lowest-rated non-conference opponent, according to Ken Palm. Bobcats are three and three. They did win sixty-three sixty at Cal, but lost. Spearfish, South Dakota. Okay, lost seventy-one. I'm not familiar with Spearfish, South Dakota. Lost seventy-one sixty-eight at Seattle U, and at home to number three twenty-four Green Bay. Uh, Montana State, both one of the nation's slowest-paced and least efficient teams. We have yet to reach 70 points this season. Okay. I feel like you talk so much that I really didn't even... <laughs> you're just talking very fast there. Colorado State, it's a big game. They're actually better rated now than uh, than Xavier. So this is another team that the Huskies could be battling against. So this is against. Saturday in Vegas. Saturday in Vegas. They've timed this so that the football plays Friday night, men's basketball That's plays incredible. Saturday. You got is it just a one-off game? What, what yeah. is the... It's not like a tournament or anything. And, and it's been scheduled for a while? Yes. Wow. They really knew the script in college football, huh? They did. <laughs> Do you think that was in, in expect or like Washington don't tell Coog fans? <laughs> we had it clinched anyway. <laughs> Already playing in Vegas. Fair. Uh, but do you think that was something that when they scheduled this basketball game that they had in mind that it was the day after the Pac-12 championship? I do think that. And they, and they were just like, well, there's a chance. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So hopefully there'll be a good turnout there of Husky fans. All right, Huskies football again has the hammer at 12-0. and 0. So now that brings us to Thanksgiving night. And we were not thankful for the Seahawks' performance in a 31-13 loss to the San Francisco 49ers, their fourth consecutive loss to their division rivals and the division leaders who extended their lead in the division that have they have opened up immediately after the Leonard Williams trade. You were there. Oh, I was there. Uh, Should I rationalize first or should I speak negatively first? 
let's start negative and then go to there were so many 49ers fans in the building just this concept that Seahawks fans that the Seahawks have a quote-unquote good fan base and look they're not the Chargers or whatever but like the Seahawks have it's a, it's like um uh what's something that was powerful really good for a long time and now is uh washed <laughs> no, the first thing that popped into my head. United States of America. Oh, that was not it. it oh, was what, what was because that? Because of your earlier comment. Michael Pettix Jr., Bobby it, Wagner. It was Bobby Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not fair. The Seahawks are the fall of the late stage capitalism of fan bases. Like, it's just not a good fan base anymore I, in reality. I don't they know don't, that this th- is totally th- fair. There was a fight in the crowd among Seahawks fans complaining that people were standing up at the game. It's just like people are mad that other people are cheering for the team when we are surrounded by red everywhere around us. Like this is, and this wasn't us involved. This was other people. Cause I'm like, well, if nobody else is doing it, like I don't want to be the asshole who's standing and getting yelled at. You know what I mean? Yeah. But <clears throat> that's why the last row of the East end zone, best seats in the stadium. Thank you. Uh, being at the top of the hawk's nest is not what I want. That seems terrifying. But, <laughs> but it's a much longer fall. <laughs> yeah. But the the fan base, like the amount of people who sold their tickets who weren't going, I understand it's Thanksgiving. I get that. People should have relished this as an opportunity to play play a team. There's a resignation among Seahawks fans, especially against the 49ers. There's not a fight left in them. Right? It was just like going into it, there was no energy, there was no excitement. I thought there would be an atmosphere heading into this game. It's Thanksgiving night. It's the first ever time in Seattle that there's been a Thanksgiving game. And there was no atmosphere whatsoever. Wow. Like even Blake Snell doing the twelfth man flag was just like okay. Who did they honored the the Seahawks legend? San Francisco fans were upset it wasn't Tim Lincecum. <laughs> Look, I would have cheered for Tim Lincecum. Of course. But the He could have united everyone. We don't want to unite everyone. We want to divide everyone. <laughs> Thank you. But the Seahawk legend was, oh, I can't remember his name because I literally had never heard of him. It was just like, this is a big atmosphere, y'all. Did you spend all of your time and energy on Steve Aoki? Like, I mean, they may have been on the throwback uniforms. I, I don't know how much and the Steve Aoki halftime is like Super NFL versus the Seahawks themselves. I think it's mostly NFL. But, like, that was pretty good, right? The Niners fans seemed to like it a lot uh, because it was mostly Niners fans in that building. Did you hear how loud it was? Like, when the Niners scored a touchdown, there was a, almost as loud of a roar as when the Seahawks were doing things well. I think it was evident on television, yes, how many Niners it fans there were. It is pathetic. Like, it is a, this is a pathetic fan base at this point. And, and it's just like the team got too good. They got old, fat, and tired, Right. And that's, that's where we're at right now with this team. We thought we had it back for a little bit of this year, but it clearly isn't. And this season, they will probably end up with a worse record than they had last season, despite some improvements oh, in the team overall. if they didn't end up with a worse record than last season. There were... There were I can't even... The, I mean, the, the question so, is whether me taking the under on eight and a half wins is going to be correct. I, I don't think it's going to be. They they have three wins in there, I think. Their their average projection is like basically eight and a half now. There were I don't even know if there were some questionable calls. I've been to so many sporting events since then. <laughs> and paid attention to so many sporting events and complained so much about different things. But like the amount of just wide open receivers that Brock Purdy had 
was shocking against this defense. And it's just like Kyle Shanahan has figured it out, but it's not just against the Seahawks defense. It's everywhere. Like this 49ers team is, we just have to admit it. I said this multiple weeks ago. They are, they probably should be the favorites for the Super Bowl across the NFL. Like they are probably the best team in the entire league. Brock Purdy went from, I, I hate complimenting, look, this is not Matt Stafford level, right? But like, Whereas last year, at the beginning of this year, I was highly skeptical about Brock Purdy overall. This year, or this part of the season, since their their three-game losing streak coming back, the amount that he is pushing the ball down the field, that he's not taking the easy reception. And in this game, the Seahawks did a relatively good job of it, all things considered. But like the amount that he's going down the field to these receivers, it is terrifying. When Brock Purdy rolls out of the pocket, I should not be as scared as I am. And like I think they've legit found I think they've found a guy, yeah. you know? Yeah. I th- I think that Kyle Shanahan has found their quarterback. They're not paying him yet. There's a big difference in what a roster looks like when you're paying that quarterback, but they still have a couple of seasons before that has to happen. And right now, the Niners are legitimately terrifying. And there wasn't even when it could hypothetically be close in the game, it was never actually close. Does that make sense? I think that's probably true. Also, or can I p- pivot to positivity here? Do we want to talk like the big picture negativity though? Sure. Well, did the Leonard Williams trade? Like literally as as I was watching the game, it's annoying that I'm thinking about this, but I'm thinking about the Leonard Williams trade <laughs> during <laughs> the game. I was Brock, definitely thinking about the Leonard Williams trade. Brock Purdy is shredding this defense and like Leonard Williams was not helpful out there in any aspect. I I think he had some moments. I don't the problem isn't Leonard Williams. The he problem scored is 31 the points. There would have needed to be a lot more Leonard Williams out there to have made this a close game. You were the... I, I know this is part of your pivot to positivity, but the defense was not the problem in this game. The defense They still was, scored 31 points. Like, the defense wasn't... Well, look, there's a rationalization to be had about the defense, and that is the Niners are fucking crushing everybody. Well, this is part of my big picture, though. It's like every year the Seahawks look at the season... And they're like, this is the position group that was the problem, and we need to fix it. And this year they decided I don't know that if was that's true though. Both to, to agree to linebacker because they brought back Bobby Wagner. They also paid like weirdly a lot of money to Devin Bush when you look at his contract. I didn't don't think they expected Jordan Bush Jordan Devin. Brooks to be as yeah. healthy as he has been. That was that was the big issue there. Uh, but it was mostly defensive line and. That was the Leonard Williams trade was the culmination of remaking their defensive line with going out and paying a lot to Draymond Jones and things like that. And like, number one, they fixed all the things on defense. They've got a lot of really good players, clearly. You know, Reek Woolen, his coverage numbers are terrific. He wasn't able to play in much of this game because of tackling issues. Yeah, his shoulder was an issue tackling. I see. Okay. Because I I saw a tweet that was like, there's no injury designation for equal, and all of a sudden Mike Jackson's just out there. Yeah. But I will say the team played pretty well with Mike Jackson out there, all things considered. Like, it wasn't... Mike Jackson wasn't the problem. No, no, definitely not. But, like, Reek Woolen is good. Clearly, Devin Witherspoon is awesome. Jamal Adams has actually played really well this season. Quandre Diggs is good. Bobby Wagner has a great PFF rating. They've added all these talented players to the defensive line, and they're still an average defense at best. And again, I keep coming back to it. There's there's one common denominator here, and that's Pete Carroll's involvement in the defense. And I just don't know that I ever believe that they can be anything better than an average defense, no matter what they do, as long as Pete Carroll is involved. I, I just, I don't, I do not buy that overall. 
that they can't. Like, if they are talented enough, they can be a top five defense. I do not believe that the scheme is so broken. But, like, how talented so do they have to get? There are a lot of things that they're missing. I'm sorry, but, like, the on the opposite side, I think Boye Mafe has been awesome, but they don't have an elite pass rusher. Correct. Like, that but is... But their sack rate is actually quite good, all things considered. They're still starting a second-year corner and a rookie corner. Like, there are things... The linebackers are pretty aged. Like, it's not a perfect defense. I'm not saying it's a perfect defense. I'm saying that the sum of the parts <clears throat> is less than the parts are They are probably slightly underachieving right now, defensively. But I don't know if that's... And maybe the scheme... You just talked about this with Bob Bender, and I was thinking about that. Where it's like, maybe Pete's scheme needs the players to be so good that unless you have elite level talent, it just doesn't quite work. And I think that might've been what we've seen, but like they are still, this but also is, that scheme was a long time of ago. A rebuild. We are still ahead of schedule on a rebuild. Well, that brings us to the second point here, which is the position group where they need to upgrade this year is abundantly clear by this point. But if the, I want to do my positivity first. Or we're still on the negativity. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. It's abundantly clear that position is quarterback. And I don't think that Geno Smith is the problem necessarily for the Seahawks. But again, if you're looking at it, I think there are two big picture takeaways from a talent standpoint. It's just not getting enough out of your talent on defense. And the fact that they just... Quarterback is the mo- single most important position in the NFL, and they're av- Geno Smith is about an average starting quarterback, and they're an average team by every metric. Do you think how much do you think Geno Smith's injury affected him in this game? I mean, that's impossible for me to say, but this this is not a take that developed after this game. This is a take that you know has been mirrored in for a long period of time. And that doesn't mean that Drew Locke is the answer either, no. by the way, to be clear. <laughs> it uh, just means you can't find the next Russell Wilson if you're not looking for Russell Wilson by drafting someone in the third round. I think I think Gino is definitely affected by the injury. I think Gino is affected by the pressure. I think that the the some of the deep balls that he was throwing to DK, well, there was one that was close early on. Yep. That it was like, you know, one foot. He gets it down. That's a catch. He was missing some of those throws by more than I feel like he's missed them in the past. I, I think Gino, I just, I whether, whether it's the injury that hurt or not, or just how hard he got hit last week and got injured, and maybe it made him a little bit jumpy or whatever. Like, But also, he's holding on to the ball longer. Right. <clears throat> I, I don't know. He just didn't look good. Again, like, he's not the problem. And I think Abe Lucas's return, which looks like it could be this week, he's practicing, uh, will help. That's just, if you're looking at, hey, what's the place they have to get better where they should throw their, invest their resources? The answer is clearly quarterback. I mean, that's point. pretty much every single team across the NFL. But like, but other teams have glaring needs at other positions too. And that's what I'm saying is because of the Russell Wilson, the bounty of the Russell Wilson trade, there aren't glaring holes to fill elsewhere. Let me ask you a question. What is the Seahawks record right now? Or whatever record, I don't know. What is the Seahawks DVOA right now if Kirk Cousins is their quarterback? I think it's better. Because I think Kirk Cousins is a, a notch, a tier better than Geno Smith. Could they be? I mean, uh, Kevin O'Connell is a tier better than Shane Waldron, P. Carroll combo. I don't know. I mean, the tape people love Shane Waldron's offense. 
Kevin the O'Connell is definitely putting quarterbacks in a good position. The Tate people have also been high on Geno's performance this year. It also needs to be noted. So, But the, the sacks, like the third downs, can't just be on, on the scheme. I agree. And at some point, as much as I believe that third third downs are more random than other downs, like, well, they're not more random than other downs. They have more importance than other downs. Therefore, their randomness is magnified. And there are, by definition, fewer of them because you can never play a third down without a first down or a, and a second down. At some point, them consistently being so bad at third downs probably has to have some signal to it. it I mean, it's... It's probably it's probably partially on everybody. It's probably partially on Shane Waldron, and also on Gino, like, and the offensive line, I suppose. But like, that should still be showing up elsewhere. I guess I, just my main takeaway here is I will be disappointed if the Seahawks don't use a. I mean, they don't have a second round pick, so it would either have to be a third round pick they're or their first round pick, pick. I think, but like the. I would be disappointed if they do not draft a quarterback in the first two days. I don't. We'll see year. how the rest of the season goes. I do not see them going into next year with Geno Smith as the starting quarterback unless his contract is massively restructured. Yeah. And like what Geno was getting paid last year versus what Geno will be getting paid next year is a pretty huge difference. And he's probably performing closer to what he was getting paid last year. As far as he's still outperforming that, I mean, he's still <laughs> playing. I think it to a level level of an average NFL starting quarterback. There's a lot of teams that would be better off, you know, if you're running that same exercise, then, you know. But then, if everything else in the team is so good, right, and you have an average NFL, you would say if if you have no holes anywhere else, and you have an average NFL quarterback, that would still be a better team than this team is. Well, they are an above average offense by DBOA. They have consistently been above average offense. So I just don't know if that's actually true. And I also think you're probably overrating. And that's what I was saying to you about the Niners is the Niners are better at quarterback. They're better at running back. They're better at receiver. They're better at tight end. They're better at offensive line. Like across the board, the Niners just have, they're better, they're better at defensive line. They're better at linebacker. They're better in the secondary. The, I don't think they can be better at all those things. I don't buy that. I think that's a little bit of a halo or, effect. Or the Niners have superstar talent at basically every single one of those positions, and they keep adding, right? The Seahawks traded a second-round pick for Leonard Williams. Like, objectively, whatever you want to say about running backs, right? Christian McCaffrey is different than other running backs. You have to accept a, a Christian McCaffrey does seem likely to matter. The Niners, when they traded... Picks, I think it amounted to all things. They didn't trade a first-round pick for Christian McCaffrey. They He was also under contract for longer. Like, that trade, apples to apples, the Christian McCaffrey trade, or the Leonard Williams trade, they're not even in the same fucking conversation yeah. as each other. In the same way that the Chase Young trade and the Leonard Williams trade are not in the same conversation as each other. Like, the Niners just keep adding players, and they were bad for a period of time. The Seahawks haven't been bad. They didn't get a Nick Bosa because they, they were bad. They did get a top five pick. I guess that's true. But the, but Devin Witherspoon is not. Nick Bosa's in his prime. And that's what I'm telling you about this defense is. It's not necessarily about the defense this year. I don't know how much better Devin Witherspoon. I mean, I don't want to do the like uh, Rick Woolen already surpassed his ceiling thing. But like Rick Woolen has probably had a better coverage season this year. And he's been less valuable because he hasn't gotten any interceptions. Like, 
it is true that you can get better at repeatable skills, but your value can go down because the non-repeatable stuff will become less common. Like, how much better can Devin Witherspoon, how more valuable can Devin Witherspoon get? He can get better, but how much more valuable can he get? I guess we'll see. I think Devin Witherspoon could be the best defensive player in the league. Like, it would... That's not out of the question. And if he is the best defensive player in the league, he's more valuable than he is right now. Yeah. But it's not like he's going to go from... You know, it's not like we're talking about... I'm, I'm trying to think. Richard Sherman is a rookie to Richard Sherman in year three because he's already really fucking good. Yeah. But if he's Richard Sherman in re- year three, you probably have a pretty good defense. And I I think there is still room for growth for this defense. I think they will get better throughout the season. And to me, when I look at that, I just don't, why? Why? Because they've, they're ha- or they've still already had the whole season. Defense. They haven't gotten better over the course of the season. Why are they going to start getting better today? You don't think they've gotten better? So that's my. I think they got better after the first couple of weeks when Witherspoon was out and not being used. You know, not being used in the slot. When I look at this game overall, yards per play, it's not like the Niners were fucking around at the end of the game, right? Like they weren't exactly. They were trying to. They scored a long touchdown on their basically their last possession, right? I do think they took their foot off the pedal a little bit. The Seahawks held them to. Their third lowest, I think tied for maybe even second lowest, yards per play on the season, this defense. And the defense, they in the end, they gave up 31 points. They made enough stops that if the offense had any semblance of competence or moving the ball, I think this game could have been close. True. The, the defense put them in a good enough position. Honestly, when you and I were talking about it last week, I was thinking about that during the game, about like eliminating the big plays. They did they as much as they could. They took away some of that stuff. They gave up the underneath things. Christian McCaffrey ran for a lot of yards. The scheme was generally right going into this game. And they forced... How many punts did they force? Like, they forced enough punts that I think that if the offense was doing anything at all... They kept also being put in very, very bad positions by the defense. Yeah, by the offense, you mean. Or by the offense. The offense failed them in this game. And that's what I'm saying is, I think... I think the defense already has gotten better. And this was a sign. This was a game that the the offense got or the defense got better. We just didn't see that because of how horrible of a position the offense put them in. I will say that argument looks slightly but marginally better because we watched the Rams just crush the Cardinals. I'm Sunday. sick of doing that though. Of just like every game being like well, secretly, like, that's what we do for UW every week. It's like, well, actually, when you look at Wazoo, schedule-wise, and if you ignore the whatever, like, this, the, if you ignore the game that they got throttled by UCLA or something, like, sometimes you have to, A, to be a good team, sometimes you have to win a game, and also to be a good team, sometimes you have to crush a team. I agree. I agree with all that. I'm just saying... The Rams' offense seemed really bad, and their success against the Seahawks seems exclusive to the Seahawks. Though, where it is... Always like against the Seahawks. You're the one who wants the Matt, Seahawks to be improving. I'm making your case for you. Matt Stafford. No, I'm complaining. I'm complaining about timing. Every time the Seahawks play the Rams, Matt Stafford just got back. Andrew Whitworth just got back. They've never played the Rams. I guess they have. They played them Literally. twice last year, friend. <laughs> they also played, I believe, a playoff game where Jared Goff came off the bench. But that, that is that. But the Niners had how many happened. Months? Here we go. Uh, from the beginning, one. Two, three, four, five punts plus a pick six. Like, 
That isn't, when you are playing the Niners, if you force five punts and a pick six, that should be a good enough game to have you be competitive if your offense is competent at all. I agree. And the offense just didn't, they did not put them in any good positions. Was there anything else in the pivot to positivity? Well, let's return to the negative. JSN, though. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, that was that was nice. The negativity that is the upcoming schedule because it doesn't get a whole lot easier next Thursday. This Thursday is the Seahawks. I, I guess one more thing on the pivot to positivity first. They Again, they ran the ball very well. Christian McCaffrey's numbers were much stronger than they were overall for the season, but I actually think they schemed this game well per what we talked about last week. Brock Purdy's numbers, like some of the weeks that he had previous, they were like, these can't literally cannot be real yeah. numbers. And Brock Purdy with a 62 QBR, 209 yards passing, a touchdown, a pick six. Like if, if you just saw Brock Purdy in this game and you didn't have the background, he was still he was still scarier than those numbers and the plays that he did make were more terrifying. But you would look at it and be like, he's a fine quarterback. Yeah. But if you looked at the performances against Jacksonville and uh, wait, who do they play in between? I forget who they're looking at. Tampa Bay. Yeah, Tampa Bay, four incompletions and over 120 more yards. Like an 84. And then Jacksonville was seven incompletions, basically 300 yards, three touchdowns. Like he he was better in those performances. And through 365 against the Bengals. Like this was like, it was a fine performance from Brock Purdy. So the Seahawks headed to Dallas on Thursday to take on the Cowboys wearing their retro jer- 90s jerseys. I don't know why I'm calling them 90s jerseys. They they did that, but they're, they're, they're 70s slash 80s slash 90s jerseys for the second time. In I can tell you why they're doing the 90s. Do you know I, who it's for? I, I, yes. It's for us. I, I agree. <laughs> it is for you and me. <laughs> Maybe not as specifically, but yes. No, us. it's for us personally. It's a Seahawks coordinator reunion I had forgotten until I looked it up that uh, Brian Schottenheimer is Dallas's offensive coordinator with Dan Quinn thriving as their defensive coordinator. Uh, the Cowboys started 2-0 beating the New York teams by a combined 70-10 to scores, then lost two out of three at Arizona and 42-10 to at San Francisco, sandwiched around yet another blowout of the Patriots. Since then, have continued blowing out bad teams with just one loss uh, after being... 3-2, and two, that coming 28-23 at Philadelphia. Their plus 162-point differential is the best in the NFL, but with the Eagles winning in OT, they're still going to need some help to win the NFC East and avoid having to go on the road to start the playoffs, as they did last year when they beat Tampa Bay in the wild card round before losing 19-12 at the 49ers in the divisional round. Uh, after dealing with an injury at the start of the season and interception luck when he threw a league-high 15 in just 12 games last year, Dak Prescott back to being one of the NFL's best quarterbacks. His 70% completion percentage leads the league. His 7.9 yards per attempt are most since 2020. And after that aberrant season, his interception rate is right back to where it was before last season with 6-11 and 11 games. Dak is number two behind Brock Purdy in EPA plus CPOE composite and threw for a season 140 by 472 yards and four touchdowns in the Thanksgiving blowout of the commanders getting their defensive coordinator and defensive backs coach both fired after that game. Uh, his favorite target, C.D. Lamb, hit 1,000 yards last week. He's averaging nearly 100 <laughs> yards per game, ranking fifth in the NFL, catching a career-high 75% of his targets for a career-high 10.3 yards each. 
They have four other receivers behind 46 and 58 targets, led by tight end Jake Ferguson, whose 10.5 yards per reception aren't as good as their receivers. Newcomer Brandon Cooks has been pretty good, averaging 13.7 yards per reception with a 69% catch rate. Michael Gallup has been the least effective of their receiver trio, catching just 61% of his targets. Tony Pollard hasn't enjoyed the same success as their leading rusher as he did splitting time with Ezekiel Elliott. He's averaging just 4.2 yards per carry after 5-plus each of the last two seasons. But as a team, the Cowboys have improved from 12th in EPA per rush to 9th. Their defense ranks 4th in EPA per play on both dropbacks and rushes. Michael Parsons at the center of that. He's number one in pass rush win rate among edges. His 11.5 sacks rank in the NFL's top five and just two away from his career high of 13.5 after making all-pro first team each of his first two seasons. As a team, the Cowboys are tops in pass rush win rate despite no other players in the top 20 at either edge or interior, and they're third in sack rate. Speaking of playing better than ceiling, second-year corner Deron Bland having a charm season in place of injured Trevon Diggs opposite Stephon Gilmore. The former fifth-round pick leads the NFL with seven interceptions and has returned five of them for touchdowns. The Cowboys' interception rate as a team tops the league. They're allowing opponents to complete just 60% of their passes, which is fifth lowest for 6.4 yards per attempt. There is a wide split in the Cowboys' opponent yards per attempt in their wins and losses. They haven't allowed more than seven in any of their wins, and they're at nine-plus in all three losses. Also big rushing totals for teams in those games, though only the Cardinals were particularly efficient on the ground, averaging 7.4 yards per carry. Yeah, and I think, I think this is they're not the Niners. The game's on the road, I get that. But like when you look at the Cowboys' schedule and who they've played and who they've beaten, I mean— this is basically all of the worst teams in the NFL. I mean, that's why by DVOA, they are behind San Francisco. They came into last week's six. They have not yet updated. They're, they're definitely not this weekend's games. a bad team, obviously. But when they have played against good teams, I mean, you know, the 42 to 10 thrashing in San Francisco is like, that one is pretty glaring. The Seahawks are basically the first team, I guess, at, at the Chargers. But the Seahawks are basically the first team that they've played that's average. Right. I mean, the Chargers are very average, yes. So in a similar ballpark. Th- those are kind of the two games. DVOA. They've either played the worst teams in the league or they have played the Niners and the Eagles. But like, as far as teams in the middle of the road, and that's partially why they have big losses and big wins. And I do feel like this is the kind of game that the Seahawks, I think the Seahawks are going to be more competitive in this game than what we saw against San Francisco and against uh, against Baltimore. Like, I don't think this Cowboys well, sure team... So. This those Cowboys were, team those is, were two of the three worst losses of in the, the peak Carroll era by point differential. I don't think I don't think this team is at the level of those two teams. And then also the defense, despite statistically being good, is not quite... They're not the Ravens, right? Like, the Ravens, I think, have progressed a tiny bit lately. But, like, the... Defensively? I, maybe overall as a team. Not, to, not tonight they didn't defensively. I don't know if you, you saw... You were at a game during that one, but they... They forced four turnovers against the Chargers and allowed 10 points. Nice. Uh, but their, their defense is not as good as the Baltimore defense is. And whether it's turnover forcing or not, like there is some luck at bay there. So we'll see. I do think the Seahawks missed Ken Walker a tiny bit in that game last week. Having Abe Lucas back will be extraordinarily helpful. Uh, if he is back on the right side of the line, we'll see how much that's actually a factor. But I could see the Seahawks being in this game. I think so, too. I mean, 
winning the game is still unlikely. Percentage chances there? 25%. All right, I'm going to say the same. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I don't like that they're playing on another Thursday. It's very odd. It's like they've scheduled the last week as if it's a usual Sunday-to-Sunday schedule. I mean, for both teams, right? They're both playing Thursday-to-Thursday. I, I didn't know this game was on Thursday until today. I thought it was on Sunday. Oh, you just learned that? Yeah, not not during this po- earlier earlier. I was listening to the Ravens and the Chargers on the radio, and they're like, "Coming up, Seahawks Cowboys." On th-. and I was like, "Really?" It would have been very nice to have had that that extra time period of rest, which they will have after this game. But they, like, well, they're going to need for that one too. But I understand, but like, I think they need this team desperately needs the mini buy, right? Yeah, which is something that they're not getting uh, in this game, and I think it would have been extraordinarily helpful for them as the team to just have a second to get healthy, reset for a minute after this long stretch. Um, but I think the Seahawks are not as bad as they've looked as they looked on Thursday. What if the Seahawks consider just taking a bye week against the Niners? <laughs> just, <laughs> just forfeit that game in San Francisco, move on to Philadelphia. We're on to Philadelphia. You know. It's not the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, but I think they are in desperate need of that. I think Gino is in desperate need just to get healthy and have like a little reset. I do think, like I said, I think this defense over the last handful of weeks of the season, that's why when you say the over-under, right, the winnable games that they have left are the Cardinals, the Steelers, and the Titans. Those are the games that maybe they won't be favored in, but it'll be one two-point games or whatever. Yes. They'll either be favored, and then the rest is just the gauntlet. That's it, right? There's nobody else? Yes. Jesus Christ. The uh, gauntlet? I mean, just in general. Like, they're they're in a position that they probably will need to go 3-0 and with two of those games on the road. Yeah. I think there's a chance that they pick off one of these games. I mean, look, if if, like, probably... I guess home versus Philadelphia was the single most likely one to pick. I think I think that might be the one. <sighs> yeah. But if they're, you know, if you're in the 20% ballpark for all of these games, the odds are you will win one of them most of the time. So, I think that Eagles one, but don't rule out this Cowboys game. Is what I'm saying. I think we will find ourselves in the fourth quarter being like, "Huh." Like the Seahawks are up 4 or something and we're like I feel like this is the kind of game where, where you don't want to think in your head where you're like, the Seahawks are actually going to win this game. And then you'll think it, and then they'll score a touchdown. The Cowboys will score a touchdown. But like, that's the territory that I think this game is. That's a reasonable thought. Well, let's get to UW football, which is 12-0 and for the second time in school history. Has matched the school record. Four wins in a season. Obviously, they only played 12 games in 1991 when they won the national championship. Uh, did not have a Pac-12 championship. The 12th regular season game back then. And there's really two ways to view this after the Huskies needed a last-second field goal. A fourth-and-one conversion from their own, I believe it was the 29 on the final drive, inside the final minute. Kudos to Kalen DeBoer for... Oh, the balls on Kalen DeBoer. That was a situation where even I, as much as I believe in the analytics, as much as I you know, believe in aggressiveness, I wasn't ready to be that aggressive. I'm telling you straight up, they punt that ball, the game is over. 
I don't know if the game is over. The Wazoo is scoring. They are getting a field. Maybe they miss it. Maybe they missed the field goal. But with the timeouts that they had, and with the way their offense had been moving, if the Huskies punt that ball in this situation, I think that game is over. I think, yes, from that standpoint, it probably was the right decision. And there's a reality that... It's weird that I had so little faith in the number five team in offensive efficiency that includes the third... Uh, highest favorite for Heisman to pick up one yard in that situation against a five and six team, which is kind of, I think, telling about where we are with UW football at the moment. I'm going to tell you what I told you immediately after that play. Rome fucking Odunze. Say his name. That man is the reason that this team is 12-0 and right now. I was working on a theory during the game that Michael Penix is maybe just good. Roma Dunze is the greatest offensive player in the history of the University of Washington. There wasn't an offense on Saturday against Wazoo. There was Roma Dunze. And when they put the ball into his hands in that situation, that's when everything went right. Literally, we can talk about Oregon if we want to. It doesn't matter. All that we need to talk about is, are they going to the door to shut? Because I yelled Rome fucking Dunze. But maybe I said his name a little bit too loud. But, but, literally all that is going to happen in that game, if the Huskies are going to win, is they are getting the ball to Roma Dunze. If they are working the ball to Roma Dunze and then playing off of that, that is an offense that is a winning offense against Oregon. If they are not, then they are not going to do anything. And that's what they didn't do enough of against Wazoo in this game. Put the ball up to him. The man comes down with the football. The catch radius is infinity around Roma Dunze. Penalties, receptions, touchdowns, rushes. Roma Dunze is it. Again, he is the most important offensive player in the history of the University of Washington. Odunze had 12 targets on Saturday, which... Uh, How many catches? Seven. Seven catches? That's his, all? His 12 targets combined for 120 yards. There were 20 other targets in this game, 21 other passes, one of them untargeted. Uh, they went for a total of 84 yards. Plus at least one pass interference in there. Now, I don't think that what you're saying is quite true because over the course of the season, Jalen Polk's targets have been nearly as valuable as Roma Dunze's targets. But whatever's going on with Jalen Polk, since he, since he taunted the rain uh, leading up to that Oregon State game, it has not gone well. Uh, his four targets resulted in no catches on Saturday and a play where he just kind of got outfought for the ball for Michael Penix Jr.'s interception in this one. And a straight drop on the last series. Yeah. Jalen Polk makes me a little nervous. I think the Huskies tried very hard to get Jalen McMillan involved in this game. I think they saw something they wanted to exploit in terms of the Cougars defending east and west rather than north and south. They so, were yeah. pretty wrong about that. <laughs> Uh, he had seven catches for, or five catches for 26 yards on seven targets. You know how many yards after the catch he had? How many? 40. Really? <laughs> yeah. His catches have combined for minus 14 yards. <sighs> uh, but the, I mean, even the like East West stuff to Adunze was better also. Like, he's just, he's a beast right now. Yeah. He is a beast. And again, in this game, like, against, I don't, did you feel. Apple Cup, we could put it aside or whatever. But, like, did you feel any joy when that field goal went through? Grady Gross. Yeah, I felt joy when that field goal went through. It wasn't strictly relief. I felt only relief. Okay. Literally, I felt no joy at all. It was just a nice win. 
on in the next one. Mom asked me whether it was, Jan asked me whether it was a fun day on Saturday. I was like, well, the end of it was fun. Yeah, literally at no point. I, did, I don't, I wouldn't say that I had fun. There, there were a couple, the moments, the pick that they had when the Huskies were up seven, got the pick, and you're like, finally. Yes. Finally, the crowd was rocking. It was, we were ready to go. It was like, the Huskies are actually going to pull away. But then they didn't do it. And I, I don't, I have no idea what's going on with Michael Penix right now. I don't, that man was not Michael Penix who we saw. Like some of those throws that he missed were just shocking to see Michael Penix miss by that much. I don't think aside from maybe the, the first touchdown pass, I guess the only touchdown pass, right? No, he threw two to do it, didn't say. The, oh, okay. There was the one in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. The, that was a good ball too, I think. Yeah. I think he threw two good balls the entire game. And they were both touchdown passes to Romo Dunze. I mean, there was probably more than that. But and, like the, and there were some plays on which his receivers did not help him. But uh, this is something that Christian Cable mentioned on Montlake and his day after piece. Like, even the completion to Jack Westover. No, he like missed, that goes he for at least five more yards. Throws. He missed two throws to Westover that he had to, to go and make big completions. Like, Michael Penix, he didn't really look right post-game. He didn't really look right during the game. There's a little bit of, like... I don't know if it was the yips or something, but I, like... I don't think it's that. Those were balls... I, I will tell you, I watched every single play of Oregon, Oregon State the day before. Bo Nix is basically perfect. Like, seeing some of the throws that Bo Nix oh, makes... We'll, we'll get to it. If you, could, if you could make Cameron Ward and give him pocket awareness, like that, some of the balls that he had where he was leading receivers, he had much better touch than Michael Penix had in this game. It was unlike almost... In anything that we've seen from Penix, and we are now at, I mean, when was the last time right, that you would I'll, say that? I'll go through the stats. So if we go through the Oregon game, okay, Penix in his first six games, and I think part of it is he set this standard probably unrealistically high, was completing 72% of his passes for 10.7 yards per attempt, 20 touchdowns, three interceptions, had to approximate the QBR off the game logs, but about a 92 QBR in that span. Okay. Over the last six games, the second half of the season, 59% completions. That's shocking. 7.5 yards per attempt, 12 touchdowns, five interceptions. His QBR is about 69. Uh, so, like, if you look at, for comparison's sake, last season, which is similar to his full season now this year, he completed 65% of his passes for 8.4 yards per attempt, 31 touchdowns, eight interceptions, 82 QBR. So, I. Uh, like, it may just have been a charmed few weeks that was never sustainable. Like, I, I talked about about the Michigan State game. Like, every time he threw a deep, deep ball, it was completed. And, like, that's not the way football is supposed to but work. But they're not even completing short passes. I feel like the offense has I changed. Agree. There's something about the offense that, against, against Wazoo, like, they were running a different offense than this UW offense generally has been. There was nothing really across the middle of the field. The, that's it, been an issue for a period of time now. It's certainly an issue against Utah as well. The intermediate stuff just isn't really happening. It's not that it's not working. It's just not happening. And for some reason, they have really moved away from last year. Like when I think about the UW offense, there were big plays. But it is those like intermediate routes that they really, really were dominant on. Right? And now the offense looks totally different. And hopefully maybe Jalen McMillan, Jalen Polk, Roma say back. Like, also, Giles Jackson, who sat this game out we'll to preserve his red shirt, yes. he's able to play going forward without affecting his red shirt status. So it's, it'll be the first time this all season 
the Huskies have had their full complement of receivers. They did go into the Oregon game that way, but then Jalen McMillan got hurt on the first series. Yeah, and basically didn't play. And, and also, Dil- Dylan Johnson, like, we have a little bit better sense. He played well in that Oregon game. That was the first game I think Dylan Johnson played well. Correct. All season was that game. We have a little bit more activated Dylan Johnson in this game offensively, but, like, it's it comes down to two things against Oregon. It is... Does Michael Penix look normal? And, which is, maybe normal is a combination of everything, right? But it's not that Wazio game, right? That is not Michael Penix Jr. Does he look like a composite of the entire season? Maybe he's not as good as he was at the beginning of the year. Maybe he's not as bad as he was at the end of the year. But, like, can we get an average Michael Penix Jr., right? Yeah. Where he was last year. How much are they getting the ball to Roma Dunze? And how much, if they are getting the ball to Roma Dunze, is Oregon defending that and it's opening things up for other players, right? Because if they are spending so much time paying attention to Roma Dunze, that means that things are going to open up for both of the Jalens, for Jack Westover, for Giles Jackson going east-west. Like, there's so much more that you can do off of that. And I do have to give UW credit because in the end, them running Dylan Johnson in the line, like, those third down plays, it's just like, what are you doing? Why... Why last week did you beat Oregon by passing to Roma Dunze, but they couldn't get a third down play to Dylan or to Roma Dunze? It's just pounding Dylan Johnson in the line over and over and over again. They finally played off of that. And Wazoo was expecting on that fourth down play. They were expecting Dylan Johnson to run. And that they, meant they, that Roma Dunze was fun. wide open. I mean, right? Penix said on the side said after the game that on the sidelines, Ryan Grubb was repeatedly telling him, look, we've got that play. We're waiting for the right moment. Yes. And, and that was it. It's one of those things where they did it over and over and over again that Wazoo was expecting it. To me, I kind of, I really felt like, I felt like they were trying to beat Wazoo without showing too much of the playbook. And I think they had to show more of the playbook than they wanted to in the end. But I do think there's, there's maybe another level against Oregon uh, of this playbook that they have not, they have not rolled out yet. That they're like, in the back of their minds, they are like, this is, this is the Oregon playbook. That they've I mean, had tucked away. No, the other element of that from a health standpoint, Tuli Leituli Lasanoa played only on the final drive for Washington State, or their full, yeah, their final drive in this game uh, after playing a bit more in previous games. So it seems likely that that was trying to keep him healthy for the Oregon game. Okay. Uh, and the Giles Jackson decision is another example of that. Like, it wasn't either or in that case, but like, Clearly, they were making some calculations based on the likelihood of beating Washington State. I, I will say, on the offense, they've struggled so much in the second half that they've dipped to fifth in FPI efficiency. Like, there's, this was my point going back to the USC game. Pay more attention to where things are overall and less than to the direction that they're going, and you're going to make better predictions. But I also just want to kind of talk about the Huskies being 12-0 and and... You know, their last three wins by a combined 12 points and just kind of the the bigger picture. Because I think there's two contrasting ways to look at this. Number one, the optimistic view. I'm going to start with the optimistic view of pessimism this time. Is like they became the first team to run the table in the Pac-12 regular season since Pretty, it was the Pac-12. The only team. They are the only team in the Pac-12 to have ever had an undefeated regular season. How many years was it Oregon loses at Arizona State. UW loses at Arizona State. Like, some bullshit loss to a bad team that just undermines your chances of playing in the college football playoff. It was all of them. 
And the Huskies did. Well, no, not all of them, because the Huskies <laughs> did make the playoff. I mean, they still. They, it wasn't like a bullshit loss. They had a legit loss. Correct. But like, so for the Huskies to avoid that is an incredible accomplishment that is so much worth celebrating. Absolutely. The other perspective I have is, we talked about it with the Seahawks last week. Like, they played close with a lot of mediocre teams, and they didn't win all of those like the Huskies did. But then they faced the real team against the Niners, and we saw the difference. That's my fear for Friday. It's a fair fear to have. The, the difference is, this team is way the fuck better than the Seahawks are. I agree Don't with that. Don't you dare compare them to the Seahawks. You can compare Oregon and the 49ers. In my head, they are the same thing. Every <laughs> single person who is a 49 there was actually a Seahawks fan after the game. He was drunk. He was like, I have to tell you something about me. And he opened up his shirt, and it was, it was a Ducks shirt underneath. And he was like, I'm... And I was like, you didn't have to tell us that. Nope. He was a Seahawks fan. It was like, we were fine as we were. In my head, every Niners fan is a Ducks fan and vice versa. Like, they are, they are singularly aligned evil. Shouts their to LaVegle James. Their offenses run really similarly, too. Shouts and to Eric Armstead. That, that's why it's annoying, right? Like, they find, if anytime you're like, I think we're getting off the field here, it's third and eight, there's a running back wide open for 10 yards. Bo Nix is the best quarterback. I, I think Bo Nix is better than Caleb Williams right now on oh. the field. Not even close. NFL potential might be different, but like Bo Nix is the best quarterback that they have played and that they will play in this season. He's I mean, probably he the best quarterback across college football. In in QBR, he is number two behind Jaden Daniels. I, there is a chance that we play Jaden Daniels. Probably an extraordinarily low one, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the odds. Yeah, I mean, I guess they would play in the Sugar Bowl. I don't know if that's one of the playoff semifinals. No, if if, if the Huskies lost and LSU won and played them in a. In a playoff game? Yeah, not in a playoff game. In a yeah, but I'm saying the Huskies apparently are, if they don't go to the playoff, are headed to the Fiesta Bowl, and LSU probably wouldn't play there. That's locked and set in stone? That's the idea. Where have you heard this? The internet. I don't know. People are just like, that's it? They're going to the Fiesta Bowl? I mean, it's the only other one out west besides the Rose Bowl. So, so they, would, they, would, they would basically keep the Huskies west. That's the presumption. Is the general thinking. Do you think there's any chance that the Huskies make the playoffs and lose? The playoff and lose. Lose and make the playoff? Yeah. You're saying? I don't think there is now. I think the scenarios that made that possible involved Michigan and Ohio State being a blowout. So you think e even if it's a close game, Ohio State gets the nod instead of UW? Well, that's to presume that there aren't three undefeated teams. If, if and then Florida Oregon. State loses. Yeah. This is, this is all under the scenario that Florida State loses and UW loses. I mean, I still think Texas would probably get the nod over them in this scenario. I mean, I guess Texas could lose. To me, it's like, I, I think there's a slim but possible chance that the committee, if, if Florida State loses and it's a close game between UW and Oregon and UW loses, I think there's a small chance that the, or the committee is just like, fuck it, let's put in both the Pac-12 teams. It would be unprecedented. There has never been a three team, three meetings in the same season behind the, between the two teams, which obviously wouldn't be guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. One, one would be three, one would be four. So they, they wouldn't face each other, at least in, in the first round. But uh, ESPN's model has a 1.2% chance. If that, that happens. The Huskies. Well, no, like they make the playoff 26% of the time. They win, beat Oregon 25%. So 1.2% of all scenarios, they lose to Oregon and, and still make the playoff. I, I don't think, I think the way that they played, if they'd been dominant in these games, I think they could lose to Oregon. If they'd played the way that Oregon played, 
I think that they could have made it in. But I do think there's also a piece of like everybody else who's in the mix has a much easier conference championship game. Every other team. I guess Georgia and Alabama is is maybe a questionable one, but like this is I would not describe Alabama as an easier opponent than than UW. But or than or this than, isn't yeah. that Michigan and Ohio State have to play each other again. You know what I mean? And like UW and Oregon, the Pac-12 has set this up that they wanted the two best teams to give themselves the best shot at a playoff team. And the committee could be that UW ran the table in the Pac-12, and if they were forced to play the same team twice, which Texas isn't having to do, which Michigan isn't having to do. I mean, Texas isn't because their their loss was to a team not in their conference. No, their loss was to Oklahoma. Oh, right. Like, they, right. nobody else is having I'm to... I'm thinking of Alabama. Nobody is Vis-a-vis having to Texas. prove it. Does that make sense? Michigan doesn't have to prove it against Ohio State. And to give Ohio State the benefit of the doubt because of reasons, like when you look at mutual, again, taking away the the actual statistical value of it, right, which you would assume that the committee is looking at, but wins to wins, apples to apples, the only other team that really would have an argument is Alabama, really. But Alabama, this is under the scenario that Alabama loses. Ohio State beat Notre Dame and then lost to Michigan. Like, they're not good wins. They're from Michigan and Ohio State. They're not really good wins. Texas has a good win, but also Texas has a worse loss. So, do you understand the scenario that I'm talking about? I do. Again, I... I, I don't think it would happen. But anyway, I think people are being a little bit down on this game. I, th- I think... Oregon has been dominant. It's going to come down a lot to, at the end of that game, Oregon figured out, holy shit, we can throw deep on this team. And it's between Estine's growth and the secondary. Like, the defense looked pretty opportunistically good against Wazoo. I don't think that Wazoo necessarily did enough to take advantage of UW's inability to defend deep passes. But but when Cam Ward held the ball for a long time, he got sacked. He the, did. the pass rush was there. Yeah, guess who leads the nation in getting sacked the fewest? Oregon? Yeah. I mean, they get the ball quickly. But, like, if Bo Nix has time, I, I don't know. We'll see about Asa Turner if he's back. I would assume that he won't be. But you do Camp have... Camp and played a little bit on Saturday. We'll see how much he plays. But to me, the issue is... It's it's the corner spot opposite Jabbar Muhammad. That oh, Elijah Dixon. Jackson's been Elijah Jackson's a very good tackler, which is why they like to play him. Yes, but he is very vulnerable to deep passes. I thought the tackling was the best it has been all year against Wazoo. It's been the best and was the best it's been in a long period of time. Thaddeus Dixon though is the better coverage corner, and he came in and had a sack. What they did on Saturday was they were playing a dime defense and. You know, their, their base is essentially a nickel. They were bringing in uh, Dixon as a third outside corner in those situations and bumping Mish Powell into the safety spot. I think they are, they are working on it. The, the defense has changed since that Oregon game. Uh, we'll see. I think Carson Bruner had some very nice tackles against Wazoo. Oh, he's, he's got to start. Like, if they can tackle crisply against Oregon, like really it's about can similar if they force five punts and a pick six, like we were talking about a different game, but like similarly to 
the Seahawks in that scenario. They don't need to force five punts in a pick six. They need to force three punts. My hope is they force a punt. I mean, Oregon State, I don't think. No, I think they did eventually. But Oregon, like Oregon did punt twice in the first two games on the first drive of each half. But then, like, the reason the Huskies won the game, besides for the, was that Oregon missed on two fourth downs. But they also for, they they forced those fourth downns. They did. UW got a little bit lucky in that scenario, but there were scenarios also that Oregon had to gain more yards in the game because they were playing from behind. Like, it's, it's not exactly like game or flow. playing thing. that far from behind. They were down 11 in the third quarter. Yeah. They also led in the fourth quarter for most of it, right? Yes. When did they take the lead? Until the very end. But UW had the ball at the one-yard line. Like, I, there, there were a lot of scenarios that UW won that game comfortably. And there was, there was a scenario that Oregon won the game, picks up the fourth down, and wins that game comfortably. Yeah. UW had the largest lead of the game. Like, I don't... Yards per play, or UW was better. Against Oregon? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And just ran less plays. If this offense looks like the offense that we just haven't seen it. We haven't seen it in a while. And I think that's why people are... We did see it against USC. But USC is very... very it wasn't, though. Defensive. It wasn't that. We saw it against USC because we could run the ball against USC. Dylan Johnson ran for 265 yards. We passed the ball pretty easily against USC, too. <laughs> it's still picking up like a third and 18. I don't know. Dylan Johnson is not going to run for 265 yards against Oregon. This offense has to run like it can run. And if it does, they will have a chance against Oregon. If they can force a few punts, I have enough faith in this UW defense to get off the field a couple of times that I just want it to be a good game. That's it. I just want it to be a fun game that comes down to the very end. If it's like two years ago, that was a fun game, came down to the very end. This year, earlier this year, fun game, came down to the very end. Let's just see that again and then see where it takes us because we are in unprecedented territory. If UW wins, can you imagine how much fun it would be Saturday just being like not even worrying about it? I can because it happened in 20. Oh, I guess we No, it didn't. We We stressed until that morning. We stressed until that morning Uh just being like, we're good. The three slot is locked in and it's going to be, look, maybe, maybe Georgia loses and it's playing Georgia, whatever. But like, if that's the only thing that we have to think about, that would be an amazing thing to think about. And if they do lose to Oregon, it is very frustrating that there isn't a 12-team playoff. But also, it'll have been an incredible season, and they will still have a very good team on the other end of it. And this will be a de facto playoff game. That's what this is essentially shaping up as. I mean, that's one of the things about the 12-team playoff is it will reduce the importance of games like this. But now they are paramount. Uh, it increases the importance of more games, though. It reduces the... I suppose. It reduces. You, you can't be out of it because you lose two games. Yes. So Oregon being a nine and a half point favorite, according to ESPN stats and info, it's tied for the seventh largest line for a rematch since 1978's FBS FCS split in a situation where the underdog beat the favorite in the first meeting. Why is that the case? Well, since the meeting, since the Huskies won, Oregon has won by an average of 26 points per game. The Huskies have won by an average of 6.5 points per game. And if you look at the common opponents, which are the other four Pac-12 North teams, plus Arizona State, USC, and Utah, which each of these teams played four of those games at home, three on the road. Oregon was plus 27.4 points per game against common opponents. UW was plus 9.4. Not great. I hate you. Uh, Bonix has become the Heisman favorite. This is no longer, sadly, like that first game, really a Heisman battle unless Jaden Daniels 
really goes off the rails. He's second in the odds at plus 110, Bonex minus 130 per ESPN bet. I think Penix could still possibly play, play his way into it. Plus 1,500. I mean, he would have to have a monster game, and Daniels would have to really struggle. Uh, mentioned Bo Nix's perfection. His 79% completion percentage would break the NCAA single-season record of oh, 77% set by Mac Jones. 9.7 yards per attempt. Mac fourth. Jones? Yeah, Mac Jones. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe don't, Bo. <laughs> Maybe don't. He's thrown just... Just throw the ball away a couple times. He's thrown just two interceptions, second among qualifying quarterbacks to Penn State's Drew Aller, who's thrown but one, and his second to Jaden Daniels in QBR. Uh, mentioned the sacks just once during the last six games, five times all season. The, the, the troubling thing about Roma Dunze, Troy Franklin's stats are better. He ranks third nationally in receiving yards, one spot ahead of Adunze. 14 touchdowns tied for second, one ahead of Adunze. And number one in Pac-12 receiving APA, where Adunze actually third behind Arizona's Tetoroa <laughs> McMillan. They both had huge games in the first meeting. Trey Franklin went had eight catches and 11 targets for 154 yards and a touchdown. Adunze, eight catches and 12 targets for 128 yards and two touchdowns. Tez Johnson, whom Nick's considers a brother, is closing in on 1,000 yards, has nine receiving TDs. Nobody else has more than 380 receiving yards, although neither does UW, as much as we think of this as a more balanced group. Uh, Oregon leads the Pac-12 in EPA per play on rushing plays as well as passes. Bucky Irving leads a platoon at running back with Jordan James. Both of those running backs have 10 touchdowns. Nick's has run for six. Despite fewer carries, uh, Jordan James actually has more EPA, but they rank third and fourth in the conference with Dylan Johnson, the only running back ahead of them. Each averaged just under six yards per carry against the Huskies and each scored a TD in that game. Oregon defense, which I don't think we mentioned last time around, is coached by defensive coordinator Tosh Lupoy. Oh, I'm aware. Uh, ranks second in the Pac-12 in both EPA allowed per play and FPI efficiency. They're first against the pass, fourth against the rush. The Huskies' 6.8 yards per play against them were bettered only by Washington State, which also Cam Ward had the most passing yards against Oregon. I'm telling you, Cam Ward, if you, if you cherry-pick Wazoo games, this was a nice win. I, yes. Uh, Penix's 316 yards were second most allowed. Dylan Johnson was the only running back to run for 100 yards against Oregon this season. Their other 100-yard game against them was their <sighs> former quarterback, Tyler Shuck in Texas Tech. Wow. Which is a weirdly close game in hindsight, knowing yeah. everything we know about Oregon now. No Ducks player has more than five sacks, but they still rank fourth with 32 as a team in the Pac-12. Now, if you're looking for a place the Huskies might win this game, it's the place they ultimately won the game last time around. Special teams. They ranked 124th in FPI efficiency in special teams, 100 spots behind the Huskies. I still don't quite understand the entire magnitude of this, but uh, despite becoming the all-time leading Oregon scorer, fifth-year kicker Camden Lewis, 10 of 16 on field goals, 5 of 11 beyond 30 yards. Let me ask you, what if Dan Lannon has it? Dan Lannon. Dan Lanning. That's Troy, that's, Troy that's, Dan. That's, and, a, that's a calm down sound. Dan Lannon. Dan Lannon. Uh, what if Dan Lanning has in his head? Everybody, look, drunk Seahawks fan, uh, was like, he was like, our coach lost us the game last time. And I was like, I hope so. I what really if he hope so. Head? What if he gets Brandon Staley? I, I don't think he has the rest of the season from what I can tell. 
But it, but but this is different. This is a rematch. I, I agree. This is people. People are all of a sudden he's getting he's getting Brandon Staley and he's getting Ryan Dade. If Ooh. if look Ryan Dade can't be can't be, you know, team from up north. <laughs> what if, what if there's a situation like that where if, all of a sudden if, if there's a gif of Dan Lenny walking off the field similar to Ryan Day on Saturday needs more hair dye, um, but what if instead of situations where he should be going for it, he gets a little bit tight. I hope so. And kicks field goals, punts, things like that. D- does stuff that is less... I mean, again, Dan Lanning made every decision correct against UW. There was no decision that he made wrong. I'm sure there probably was. But like, as far as going for it on fourth downs, he made all of the key decisions correctly. Sometimes you don't get them. What if that happens again? What if it happens one time and then all of a sudden they get tight? It is definitely a place. I, I still, I actually think none of this stuff matters. I think the only thing that matters is, is UW going to score efficiently? I think that is it. I think it, I think but if this you game, get, if UW does score efficiently, like Oregon can still win if UW scores efficiently, but th- then this, this, stuff this, gets this that is where this stuff comes in, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah. None of this other stuff matters. Their their defense, their pass rush, Troy Franklin, nothing else matters. Because if Michael Penix is playing like Michael Penix played against Wazoo, the game is over. I agree. So yeah. it, it is, is UW an efficient offense? But this was the case going into the USC game, too. And granted, again, USC has a, a very poor defense. Oregon if has a, a very good Oregon defense. All of a sudden, Oregon trades defenses with USC. I feel so much better about this game. Even with opponent adjustments, Penix played really well against USC, and the offense played really well. Uh, the other thing on the special teams, they have the worst average short position after kickoffs in the Pac-12 by 1.5 yards per kickoff. It's kind of strange. So I don't know if the, I, I didn't dig deeper into the numbers. I feel like there was... was this could there, be a, a Daniel Nata game, though. Yeah. I was, kept waiting for him to break one against Wazoo. He looked close. Was there a... I feel like there was a play where they ended up starting... Oh, because because somebody like touched out of bounds, or like they were trying to get a kickoff out of bounds in that Oregon game. Am I remembering that correctly? I don't think you are. Okay, well that happened at one point this season for the Huskies. So yeah, I mean, I I'm hopeful because of those USC stats. I'm hopeful because we've seen Michael Penix before. I'm excited to watch this UW offense. I do not want to watch Oregon play offense ever again in my entire life. <laughs> Well, I've got some bad news for you. If you if UW doesn't win this game, I will not be tuning in to whatever playoff semifinal they're in. I'm just I'm done. I'm done. I the the allure, if they're down, I'll tur- I'll tune in. The allure of watching Oregon lose will be the only thing that will get me through. But like this is, I just I I need a break <laughs> from playing Oregon. I thought we were done. I thought we were finished with this. But it's been a collision course all season. Ever since UW and Oregon played, UW came out victorious the last time through. This is it. This is the Pac-12. This is the conference. They've been together hand-in-hand for a couple of years navigating the situation post-USC leaving. Uh, Your definition of a couple of years based on the 2022 matchups between these two teams and the July 1st, 2022 USC decision to leave the 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 Pac-12 leaves much to be desired. 
these two teams have been on a collision course all season ever since that game in Seattle. We saw it when it happened. You could you could see that these two teams were at a totally different level and probably a totally different level than most Pac-12 teams we've seen over this time period. The entire history of the Pac-12. This UW team, this Oregon team, this is it. This is for the Pac-12. This is for the history of the Pac-12. It would be incredible to end up as victors in the last ever Pac-12 championship game. It'll come down to Michael Penix Jr., what he looks like, to whether they're getting the ball to Romo Dunze, working off of that. To me, that is it. Hopefully, Oregon special teams have to be a factor. If I'm being honest, though, percentage chance of victory. I, I said 35% on Saturday. I'm saying 30% today. I think that's about right. I think the other thing... We mentioned this going into the USC game. Like saying that turnovers are an important factor in a game is pretty reductive. But in a situation like this where both offenses are so efficient, just one, you know, empty drive like that can make a huge difference. A, a hold. Not even a turnover. A hold. Oh, I mean I don't I don't believe that a hold would force a a stop. Not necessarily, but it would be a lot better. Like that's what happened against with Oregon against Oregon State when they did turn the ball over. It's like, can we get a fucking holding call? Something like that. Like anything that sets them back. I mean, that's hopefully how this UW defense will function in this game, that they're not giving up the big plays, right? Because the killer for Oregon State was the touchdown with 54 seconds left or whatever. This isn't in Oregon. This isn't in Washington. Hopefully the cheating will be mitigated. The clock stuff that I saw Oregon do on Saturday, Friday, will be mitigated. Like... They still can fake injuries, though. Oh, no. I mean, I I hope that they're in the position to have to fake injuries because that means it's close enough. They didn't fake injuries against Oregon State because they didn't need to. <laughs> Touche. You know? But... Uh, I just want it to be a close game and to have fun watching this. I mean, the other thing we talked about the last game about, you know, probably the biggest UW-Oregon game ever, given the stakes... Heisman may not be in play anymore, so that element is off the table as compared to back then. But for these two teams to play for the first time in the conference championship, it wasn't possible for a long period of time. And look, yes, we're both going to the Big Ten. There's a lot of good schools in the Big Ten. The odds of playing Oregon again in a conference championship anytime soon are not that great. Do we know how that's going to be structured? They'll take the two best teams. Thank God. So fucking. I mean, dumb. there are no divisions in the Big Ten going forward, so that that won't be. It's nice that everybody's growing up. An issue, but just like Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Iowa, whoever else, like the odds of both of us being the two best teams in the conference in the same year are pretty low. It'll happen eventually over a long enough time period, but you know, this is this the is stakes big one. almost certainly can't get higher though because in a twelve-team playoff. If right. there's one game that matters Unless that much. Unless they play each other in, in, in the, the playoffs. playoffs yes. So that that would be the scenario. But like b- precluding that, this this is it. Well, I hope we're recording an emergency pod on Friday night. <sighs> on that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.